As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so what would you have given to have been there on that day? When Jesus walks out of the tomb and first encounters his followers, the first people to witness resurrection life, in the history of the world. I mean, what a wild moment, right? Put yourself there. One of a kind in all of history. A man who is certifiably dead, executed by professionals, laid in a tomb under guard behind a massive stone. He just casually walks up to your circle of friends and inserts himself in the conversation. What's going on, guys? Anything new? You know, what's happening? Of course, the Bible would record that they disbelieved for joy and were marveling, marveling. They see him, but they can't fathom what's happening. Jesus is raised from death to a totally new kind of life, but he's still himself too. They can recognize his face. He carries the power over death and sin in his very body. He's incorruptible, imperishable, untouchable, but he's also recognizable. He even carries the scars from his earthly life with him into eternity, into resurrection life. They can touch his scars. He's completely transformed, and yet he's still the same. They don't quite recognize him at first. But then, as soon as he talks with them, engages with them, they're like, oh my gosh, it's you. Like, how could we not have seen this before? I've heard it described as running into a childhood friend that you haven't seen in 40 years, and you've, you've kind of, everybody's aged a little bit, everybody looks a little bit different, but the, the you is still in there, right? And you don't recognize them at first, and then you see it, and you're like, how, oh, how could I have missed it? You can't unsee it once you see it. Of course it's them. All the memories come flooding back in, all the same characteristics, all the shared experience. One of the ways his followers knew this resurrection Jesus was the same old Jesus that they'd walked around with and palled around with for years, um, is that he wakes up from death and he immediately does what? 
He starts asking them questions, doesn't he? He starts asking them questions. We've been in this sermon series over the past couple of months here at Grace uh, that explores some of the questions that God asks us in the Bible. And, and it's been a great journey. I've loved this series, one of, the, one of the favorite ones that I've ever done. We know that we have questions for God. Like, of course we do. There are things we don't understand. There's things we don't quite make sense to us. There's things that we wish God would show us about why these things are happening to us in our life. Um, they don't seem to fit. The Bible's full of our questions to God, but there's actually more questions from God to us in the Bible than there are from us to him. God asks, where are you? Where's your brother? What's your name? Uh, where were you when I created the foundation of the world? Do you want to get well? I think it's fascinating. I mean, we ask God questions because there's things that we don't understand, but why does he ask us questions? Right? It's not, not like he needs more information. He knows everything there is to know about us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows the way the world works better than we could ever possibly know how it works. So why so many questions from God to you? I like the way Mark Buchanan puts it in his book, The Rest of God. He says, God, strictly speaking, has nothing to ask, but he asks anyhow. And this, I think, is why. Nothing hooks us and pries us open quite like a question. You can talk all day at me, yet it obliges me nothing. I can listen or not, respond or not, but ask me one question and I must answer or rupture our fellowship. God's inquisitiveness, his seeming curiosity, is a measure of his intimate nature. He desires relationship. He wants to talk with us, not just at us, or, or we at him. So a key attitude of prayer is listening, and what we listen for most are God's questions. I love that. Jesus does not ask questions for more information, but he asks us questions for our own transformation. During his earthly ministry, his whole heart, his whole life, his whole mission was to invite you and I back into a relationship with himself. And after his resurrection, Jesus could arrive on the scene for his people however he wanted to, right? After his resurrection life, I mean, new body, new power, you name it. He could show up however he wants to encourage his people, flaming you know, tongue coming out of his mouth, blue skin, glowing, whatever he wants to do. Uh, he actually does do a little disappearing and reappearing, to be fair, that's, that's in there. But generally speaking, after the resurrection, he shows up in the same way he's always shown up in the lives of his followers, asking us inviting questions, continuing a conversation, asking questions that open our heart to his heart, to his presence in our lives, asking questions that bring us into a deeper relationship with him. So when these disciples bump into Jesus in his new resurrection life, they are unsure what they're seeing, and then they hear his voice approaching them like he always has, honest, warm, gracious questions to grow a relationship and further a conversation. What in the world would a resurrected man ask his friends? What does the resurrected Jesus want to ask you and me today? There are three questions uh, from Jesus in our passage this morning. I don't know if you caught them or not. We'll look at the last one first, 
because it's certainly the greatest resurrection question of all time, all right? So Jesus rises from death, first human being to ever live a new kind of life that sin and death and sorrow will never touch again. He's majestic. This is more than historic. This is epic. This is world-changing. This is one-of-a-kind event, the sort of thing that sends a bolt of lightning through your spine. He opens his mouth, and the burning question on Jesus' lips in verse 41 is what? Do you have anything to eat? Let me read it. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it before them. Okay, so think back in your own life to the most grueling, physically demanding thing you have ever done or that you've ever been through. I signed up for my first uh, marathon this coming fall in Moab. That's the farthest I will have ever run in my life. I assume it will absolutely wreck me, and that will be the most physically grueling thing that I've ever done. But even when I run a half marathon, I get done with that thing, and I'm just like, I want all the food I can see. Like, give me all the food on the planet in front of me right now. I'm just famished, right? My body wants to take in as many calories as it can. Now, whatever your most grueling physical experience has been, it doesn't even come close to what Jesus has just gone through. His death on Friday was intentionally long and cruel. And then they laid his dead body in a tomb where it rested for 30 hours or so. And, of course, no food, no, no water, and, and he's decomposing. His, his cells are, are deconstructing. And then, last but not least, Jesus is physically resurrected to new life, a new body, but the same body, re-knit together, reformed, reborn remade. I mean, just think of the calories that would burn, right? Like that's got to be at least a thousand an hour. When it comes to a workout, an ultra marathon has nothing on a good old fashioned resurrection. So of course, Jesus wakes up hungry. Of course, he asks for dinner when he runs into his friends on the beach. This makes all the sense in the world. But only if, and here's the point, only if Jesus's body is a real body right? Only if his, he's a body like ours, if he's human like us, if he needs the food that we need to eat and the rest that we need to sleep, a human body that needs to replenish calories and rebuild cells and just be human. And buried in this amazing, beautiful human question, do you have anything to eat, is a whole world of hope for you and me and the entire world. The Bible says Jesus' resurrection life is the first fruit of all resurrection life to come. Up till now, Jesus is the only one who, who's come through death into this new kind of vibrant resurrection life. But he won't be the last. Everyone who looks to Jesus as their Savior and King will join him soon enough. Everyone who trusts God's promises are true for them through Christ will experience new life with him forever. Not just with him, but new life just like his new life. Our future in life in Christ, it's not this wispy, kind of ghost-like experience. Heaven is not in the clouds. Our future life with Christ is earthy. It's physical. It's a body. Heaven will be here on earth where human bodies were meant to live. Our future life with Christ, resurrection life, 
it's just like this life now, except better in every single way. It's filled with food and drink, only better. It's filled with the same laughter we enjoy, only richer and longer and deeper. It's filled with mountain climbing and skiing and adventure, but without any fear or any tragedy. It's filled with hugs without pandemics. It's filled with faces without masks. Imagine, hear me out, imagine what that'll be like. It's the richest human life you can dream up, only better than that too. When Jesus returns to remake the world, he's going to remake his family into his resurrection image. And after that kind of physically demanding event, I imagine at least one question on all of our minds will also be, gosh, do you have anything to eat around here? That was, uh, that was a major workout, this resurrection. And Jesus himself will usher us into the first of many resurrection feasts that will satisfy our souls. Tim Keller, in his new book on the resurrection called Hope in Times of Fear, put it like this. No other faith says not only that we will be resurrected as individuals, but that the material world will be renewed as well. This is the fullest possible hope. The resurrection of Christ promises us not merely some future consolation for the life we lost, but the restoration of the life we lost and infinitely more. It promises the world and the life that we've always longed for, but never had. This world, but better. All the ways that you wish it would work right, made right. All the frustration and the anguish and the anxiety that sort of always runs in the background, sometimes low grade, sometimes spiking up to our consciousness, all of that gone. Freshness and freedom that you've never experienced in your life so far, earthy, and eternal, without even the threat of sin, without even the threat of it going bad again. And all of this is yours in Christ. John Updike um, is an author and a poet. He wrote a a little poem called Seven Stanzas on Easter. I'm not going to read you all seven of them, but listen to a couple of them. These are cool. Make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body if the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. The same hinged thumbs and toes, the same valved heart that pierced, died, withered, paused, and then regathered out of enduring might, new strength to enclose. Let us not mock God with metaphor analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the events a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us walk through that door. This is our great future hope. Because of what Jesus won for us on the cross and in his world-changing resurrection life, but What's so amazing about this conversation that he's having with his followers in Luke 24 that we're looking at this morning is that Jesus seems to be saying, he is saying, that this resurrection hope, it's not just something that waits for us in the future, but it's a living hope that gets pulled into our present lives right now. Consider the next two questions that Jesus asks. So he asks for something to eat. He also asks this in verse 38. Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? 
Jesus asks these two questions as if he expects his arrival among them, sporting his new resurrection body, to change their lives in some important way that day, like immediately, not just in the future, but today. He's saying that resurrection hope today banishes our troubles. The resurrection hope today addresses the doubts and the fears that arise in our hearts. Not only in a year or in 10 years or in 60 years when we pass through death and find Jesus waiting for us on the other side, offering us to feel his resurrection skin and his resurrection bones, just like he did to his first disciples, but now, this week, this afternoon, Jesus is saying, the power of my resurrection, life, seeps into your world right now from heaven and changes something drastically. It it brings hope to seemingly hopeless situations. Here's how it works. It's something like reading your own obituary in the paper. Now, I realize not a lot of people are going to have this experience in their life, but in 1888, Alfred Nobel actually had this experience. Okay, So Alfred's brother, Ludwig Nobel, died, and a French newspaper accidentally printed the wrong obituary, okay? They printed the obituary for Alfred. Ludwig had died. So Alfred Nobel got to read his own obituary in the paper, and after the initial shock wore off that he had died just a couple days before, as he read through the obituary, he became deeply sad. As he read his life's legacy from the perspective of his own death, He didn't like what he saw very much. In the obituary, the Swedish inventor was dubbed the merchant of death. Uh, You see, Alfred Nobel had been a prolific inventor. He had something like 350 patents to his name in his lifetime. And his most famous um, was a nitroglyceride combination that he put into the form of a stick, and he named it dynamite. All right. Now, dynamite, of course, made it easier to burrow tunnels. It made it easier to clear pathways for dams and other building projects. It made construction much more efficient. But it was, of course, also used in more destructive ways and became highly, a highly efficient killing machine that took many, many lives. So after reading what his life had amounted to in his own obituary, the accumulation of wealth, and becoming the merchant of death, Alfred realized something had to change. Something has to give here. So he immediately, upon reading that, devoted the rest of his life to a new cause. He ended up giving his entire $9 million fortune at that time to the establishment of the Nobel Prize, which today, 100 years later, is synonymous with the greatest advances in science, literature, medicine, and peace. Seeing his life from the perspective of his death transformed his life, didn't it? Seeing his life, being able to put on the lens and seeing his present life from his future totally transformed the trajectory of his life. It changed his story. How could it not? How could that future not seep back into his present and give him a bigger perspective, a more generous heart, a longing for more meaning and purpose than just money and fame. But now imagine that Alfred did not only see his current life from the perspective of his future death, but he was actually given a chance to see his current life from the perspective of his future life after death. 
Think how transformative that would be. Imagine you could put on the lenses of the future and look back on your current choices and priorities, but the lens was not just an obituary, but it was resurrection life on the other side of death into eternity. That would be transformative. That would be life-changing. That would bring new meaning and perspective and motivation to our everyday life. And that is exactly, exactly what Jesus is offering his followers then and today when he asks, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? It's I myself. Touch me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. Jesus assuages our fears and addresses our doubts, not with philosophical or theological points, but through an encounter with his resurrection life, right? Touching his resurrection bones through his resurrection skin and by eating a freshly caught rainbow trout grilled over an open fire. They did not see their lives from the perspective of their own death that day, as much as a gift as that would be, they saw something far better. They saw their lives from the perspective of their life after death. They bumped right into the living reality of their future hope. They touched the one that they would become like. And Jesus offers you that same gift as well. If you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt this morning, if you could be certain what awaited you, after a short sleep through death, was more life, was a better life, was a life that right now you could only imagine, and even your greatest hopes would turn out to be a shadow of the richness that awaits you with Jesus in his resurrection world, what would change? How would that power seep back into your life today and transform you? I mean, imagine the freedom from fear, if all of us believe that all the way down in our bones. Of course, this world is full of troubles, but the resurrected Jesus has overcome the world. Imagine the rest, of our, the rest that our souls would enjoy, even in this topsy-turvy world we live in right now. Our future is certain. It's settled. No ups and downs today or this year can shake us. Not really, not to the core. We know Our destiny and our future is with Jesus. And then imagine the bigger purpose and the calling that you would have in this life. Jesus gave it to us in verse 45. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem You are my witnesses to these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. This is the kind of calling from Jesus that can totally reprioritize our lives. This is the kind of word from him. He's basically saying, look, if it matters in eternity, it matters today. If it doesn't matter in eternity, how much could it really matter today? Now think through your life in that kind of a grid. Think through the way you spend your time and your money. Think the way you talk to people, interact with people. 
Think of the, the priorities you have, the places you invest um, through that sort of grid. It's in this way we begin to see how Jesus' resurrection life seeps back into our present lives and reorients us, redeems us, refreshes our souls. This is exactly what Paul was getting at in Philippians 3 when he said he counts everything a loss except if he could know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Right? It's one thing to know about the resurrection. It's one thing to know about Christ and his church and his word. It's a whole other thing to know the power of his resurrection is at work in the world right now, in your lives right now. That will change you. Esau Macaulay is an Anglican priest. He wrote in the New York Times this week, Christians at their best are the fools who dare believe in God's power to call dead things to life. Do you believe that? Are you, are you fool enough to follow Christ on that kind of a journey? That, e, that in, no situation is hopeless because Jesus is alive and he ate a fish, right? That our bodily future life with Jesus into eternity can reorient and redefine and redeem and reclaim everything about our world today. There, that is the resurrection question Jesus wants to ask you this morning. Let me close with another great quote. This one's from Pastor Dwight Moody. Um, back in the late 1800s, he was a pastor in Chicago, Moody Institute, Moody College, if you know any of that, it's named after him. But speaking of reading your own obituaries in the paper, uh, he put it this way. Someday, he said, you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that's immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned unto his glorious body. It's that hope that Christians are staking their lives on. It's that future that we're staking our lives on. Do you believe it? A future hope and a present power at work in the world. If you believe it, will you join me in declaring it once again before we close in prayer? He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all the ways all the ways that you have given us gifts of your love and generosity through Christ. His resurrection life stands above them all. It is an amazing claim. It's an amazing event. I wish we could have been there, and we all will be there soon. God, we pray that your resurrection life, the power that you have right now reigning as our king, would find its way, would seep its way into our lives and transform our lives. We pray for a bigger perspective. We pray for, for a changed life. We pray that our fears would be removed, that our troubles would be addressed because we know that you're alive and we know that you reign and we know that you are for us and that you're guiding us through our lives. God, thank you for all your gifts to us. We ask these things in your name, amen.